Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I feel like I'm talking fast, but I'm not sure. But I do various things at Freethink. They are important. They are still mysterious. And I'm delighted to be with you. I am joined by a league of extraordinary humans. And I'm so, so happy to be doing this again. Really, honestly, this is the well, it's not the best part of my week. There are other things I enjoy more, but I do like being joined by Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine. Uh, my very good friend, Michael Moynihan. I had to say, uh, because I forgot, but Michael Moynihan, who, who is at Vice <laughs> well, News. You very quickly recovered by calling yeah, me your very good friend because you couldn't remember. I did. Did I, wait, did I say that about you? That was a mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, was, yeah. That's a little too much. It's an overstatement. <laughs> I, re- I remember the way you you spoke to me harshly the last yeah. time we recorded together, asshole. That was not the last time. Oh, that right. was a couple times ago, and you we were being the- a dick, <laughs> so I had to call you out. We literally the- lost it. Causing. There was a to a southerner. <laughs> that is yeah. not. That was, yeah, you were to a damn Tennessee like, southerner. Can I? Yeah. Can I just? I was like, hold on, Stone. You know what? I'm going to try to get in <laughs> this here. This is crazy. Because... This is what happens. <laughs> mischaracterization of my of my position. Yeah. Totally true. Yeah. You know who won't it's mischaracterize true. my positions? Tell us. Jane Coaston, senior editor, senior editor writer at Fox. Politics, politics editor. Yeah, senior What's politics okay? editor yeah, at Fox. Also <laughs> resident. Not yet editor. See, look at this. I'm going to try one more time because I keep promoting yeah. her. CEO of Vox, <laughs> Jane Coaston, uh, who is also yeah. senior politics writer and who is also the resident conservative whisperer. She knows what you people are thinking. And yes, I said you people. Jane, mm-hmm. thank you for joining us for a second time. Thank you so much for hey, having Jane. me. Yes, thank you. Um, how is everyone doing? Well, my question for you, Camille, is uh, given how fast you're talking, is when did you take the Adderall? Was it like ten minutes, or like how did? You, what was the timing? I yeah, I was going to say when he's like, I do some things at Freethink. I was like, oh, is that what you do at Freethink? No, no, I took I took the Adderall. Yeah. It was only fifteen milligrams, and I took it at like seven thirty a.m. So only only fifteen. I mean, milligrams. It, the prescription says thirty. Says thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, oh, that's cracked it, cracked it not not to get too deep into this, but yeah, that's a, a very moderate amount, <laughs> yeah, especially see? if you took it a while ago. Jane, Jane what are you taking? <laughs> what, are they, what are the kids at, uh, at Vox or is it Fox? Uh, where, where did we promote no, you to it, a host on Fox? It's funny. Uh, so I, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid. And so they gave me Ritalin. And then later in college, people were like, oh, so they just like give this to you. Just like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, they don't give it to me but yeah so but like the dose so you're very popular i I was there was a brief point but um (laughs) where people got very excited about something i was not planning on doing but yeah no that that dosage sounds about right so it's about right for you camille yeah Yeah. i mean yeah i mean you never sleep no i don't don't sleep i mean i get texts from you (laughs) you get texts from you like three in the morning they wake me up and i'm like fuck (laughs) and i always think that somebody's like hurt (laughs) and it's just you like with your pupils like dinner like dinner plates and it's always the same thing it's It's a hoax something you know it's a hoax (laughs) yeah it's a hoax and and by the way he says he's right every every single time time i'm right what is this guy's name bubba sparks the nascar driver (laughs) actually actually no he's not bubba sparks but i like that more but but bubba but 
yeah. Bubba apparently found some sort of um, he did not rope find it. Device or it was, someone uh, did in his garage. It was someone in his garage who then told him, "We found a noose in your garage." Uh-huh. And then the FBI came up today and was like, "Oh, that's been up." Since 2019, and they couldn't have possibly mm-hmm. known that it would be his garage, uh-huh. which then raised mm-hmm. a lot of new questions. Um, because I, it's it was interesting because um, it's just coming at a time where NASCAR is having this debate about the Confederate flag, mm-hmm. and people are mm-hmm. trying to you know flag the Confederate flag over. And a uh, well-known driver's son put something on Facebook about how he wanted to like essentially lynch this guy, and so everybody like it's also one of those moments in which a lot of people are opining on NASCAR for the very first time. Yeah. And so yeah, that is why yes, I have right. been like, this is probably not a moment for me to say anything at all, <laughs> because this is a world where I'm like, I'm just, this is not my, this is not my space. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the thing that no one says anymore. I, and the lesson of all these things is why don't we just hold off a second? I, I genuinely and, and like, like I'm going back to tweets from yesterday. I'm like, you know what? People who call this, the Jesse Smollett type, Incident are monsters. I'm like, you know, you're all monsters. <laughs> Just shut up and let it play out. No, I, I, and by the way, if you see, like, if you see something hanging, like, if I was him, I would just be like, can I take a but look? But do you see that? what yeah. happens when yeah. I let, let me, it let when I let it play out, Moynihan? Is I get scooped because the FBI swings swings into action and they fucking figure out that it's a hoax before I have an opportunity to show up on the podcast and say, hey, you know what? Not a this hoax does not smell necessarily. right to me. Just a, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A, you're right. Not a hoax necessarily. A misunder, you know, but, a leap to conclusions. Yeah, yeah. Elites, yeah, but I, but I can a, engage in a Bubba little... It's Bubba Wallace, to be Bubba for Wallace, the record. His yes. name is Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace, that's right. Um, and it, it's interesting also because he is, you know, the only black driver in NASCAR right now. And I think that there's just... One of those challenges in which how he handled that and how he was supposed to handle that while being so observed, I do not envy him at all. I do not like you. I cannot imagine being at the center of something, especially when it's something to which people have deep emotional attachments. Um, I think that people's emotional attachments to the Confederate flag is stupid. But I recognize that people have that emotional attachment. And I understand that, like, this is an issue. I mean, especially even just talking about NASCAR in general. Like, I'm like, I when I was a sports writer, you know, I wrote about the NFL and I wrote about college football. And I wrote a little bit uh, for ESPN magazine about college basketball, but mostly uh, the history of people trying to use college basketball to gamble. And like the history of these like crazy scandals that have taken place in college basketball involving universities that no longer exist. Hmm. You know, if you go back to like the early 1950s, there was a university in New York that no longer does basketball that like won these national championships. And then like half the team got thrown out for like really egregious point shaving. <laughs> like and it's 1950s point shaving. So I can't even imagine what the actual scoring was. Like were they like you figured it out when the final score was like 12 10? 12 to 7. <laughs> like oh my god. Ever, it, but, but Boston College still exists, right? It, I have to check. Yes, it still like does. It does. Right? It does. One of one of my favorite Whitey Bulger operations. Oh of, yeah. Of the uh, point shaving scandal there. Yeah, that people went to jail for like a long yeah, time. Yeah, there's it, it was a giant thing. Whitey Bulger yeah. got a lot done. <laughs> He's like, a very busy was, man. Was, it, very productive. And I think the man, the guy who um, delivered that cash to those players, I, don't, I think Whitey might have been involved in this, was, uh, was Henry Hill. Yeah. Uh, that was, the uh, subject of Good Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah he yes, talks about true. it in his book, like, 
which I'm yeah. glad. I mean, I understand why Martin Scorsese didn't randomly be like, and just a quick aside over here, yeah. <laughs> you know, play Eric Clapton's song and into point shaving, business. which, yeah. you know, I, I, I that could have worked, but I understand why Sounds it didn't. Good. But yes, it was the Whitey Bulger story also apparently featured a numerous other famous gangsters, which again makes me sad that the Johnny Depp Whitey Bulger movie was very bad. Mm. It was bad. I watched it on a plane, and you know how it like was bad. your expectations for plane movies are like if your expectations for a movie are here and you're on a plane, it's like <laughs> eh, okay. And I noticed it was bad on a like, international oh. flight. Oh That's god, how so you're wasting oh, international level. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I will only yeah, the book, but the, by the book, it's not based on. Is actually not very good. No. It sold like a billion copies. Oh, I bet. Black Mass. Yes. Yeah. And J- Gerald O'Neill, I reviewed for the Wall Street Journal a, a book that he wrote about. Um, about the Irish in America, uh-huh. and I gave it a very, very bad review. So, so don't read that well, one. Only, so that's your recommendations. I'll, I'll only give you one more thing about the the Bubba situation, and that is that I did hear an interview with Bubba's mom on the Joe Madison radio show. Joe Madison, who refers to himself as the Black Eagle, um, and I believe his show is on Sirius or mm-hmm. yeah, it's Sirius XM because it's only one network now. Um, but his mom. Mm-hmm was describing a circumstance where she said this happens all the time that it is routine for her son to be called a nigger by other people on the track that it just happens and he's always dealing with things like this and honestly when i first heard about the rope i thought to myself this story doesn't sound right but certainly when i heard his mom say that i said that just does not sound persuasive at all like considering NASCAR, like inside the car, there are cameras and like the racers are on radios. Like there's all sorts right. of stuff that just makes it really improbable for, that people are using the N word with reckless abandon in the midst of NASCAR races. People who have read so the, much uh, on the line. That seems weird to I me. I read the New York Times piece on him and they got into So with NASCAR and if any form of auto racing, like there are numerous steps you take to get to it. So if you race Formula One, you start out in you know, the United States, you might go from IndyCar. If you're in Europe, you might go through other developmental phases. But she mentioned in the New York Times piece that this was something they dealt with a lot when he was a kid, like that they dealt with when he was like getting because getting into stock car racing, as you might imagine, especially stock car racing in the South may not be the most fun environment to be a young biracial man. And so I think that that experience where at, at the NASCAR level, I think that that's one of the things that interests me about NASCAR is that it is a like billion dollar enterprise that is still trying to pretend like it's the sport that it used to be when it was based on like rum runners trying to get away from the feds. Yeah. And like they, they you know, they call back to these legends like Richard Petty and others. But Dom Deluise. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cannibal. Yes. Come on. Um, but then, you know, this is a sport that is like very much it is the the line between what it once was and what a lot of people think of it as being mm-hmm. and what it wants to be like NASCAR wants to be this like both a kind of family entertainment sport but also a sport like a multi-billion dollar enterprise yeah and there are a lot of people for whom there it's like well i can't enjoy it if i can't you know wave the stars and bars from the inner circle <laughs> and you know that, that nascar is like Good we accent. would really rather you didn't do that please don't 
I like hockey, and and I can't watch it unless the flag of a defeated racist power is displayed at some point during the match. So I do, oh you know, God. like the yeah, arrow yeah, cross yeah. from Hungary. Ustasha. It might be. By the way, is it is an yeah, that was at the Croatian Ustasha. You gotta, you gotta remember how, who Tito Croatia. took down. Yeah, that would be a that would be a, a like a basketball thing. I don't think it'd be Croatian hockey well, players. But um, the one thing I want to know about this is a question because yeah. Jane seems to have read a lot mm. about this. Is this is is like does he call himself Bubba? For that reason, no. in a way, of it like seemed to be like that's flying his- under, like, hey, I can be really southern. I'm calling myself Bubba, like, because when I saw it, I was like, wait, the biracial so, name is Bubba. So is his right? name is his full name is Daryl, but he's gone by Bubba since he was a little kid, and or okay. his mom calls him Bubs, which is on the list of things that I am certain he did not want his mother to tell the New York <laughs> Times. But all mothers <laughs> will tell the New York Times, like, hey, by the way. <laughs> Well, well, I do want to say candidly, we do, we certainly do not know that there was any sort of Jesse Smollett kind of craziness no. going on here. And I did use the word hoax and I should not have. I apologize. I'm not suggesting it was. I'm just suggesting that I thought it was dubious. And I, I would end our segment of the sports folks. See, I didn't say sports guys that time because you're here, Jane, <laughs> and I don't know what pronouns you might want to use. I don't, you know, I never asked Matt his pronouns. No. I definitely know Moynihan's pronouns. You don't want yeah, to know. I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> Uh, in Matt, did you have something before we transition no, just, to, uh, to the meat of the program? It's not that interesting, but like uh, I'm just I'm I'm always fascinated when there are athletes in particular who are uh, like the only black guy or the only black woman in a place, uh, particularly in the South. And in the history of baseball, uh, I've got half a dozen books behind me that are about you know like uh, Dick Allen, uh, Richie Allen back as, as he was at the mm-hmm. time. Was an amazing athlete, a total asshole. Although he, he, he sort of uh, redeemed himself later, but like part of his personality was forged. They threw him as a kid um, to integrate. I think the what's it called? Uh, it's not the Arkansas League, but basically, he played in Arkansas, Double A uh, uh, a league. There, there had not been uh, down there uh, a, a black player. Ever. And so it's like 1963 mm-hmm. and people are just not friendly. 62. They're not friendly to the first black guy. And he's obviously the best player in town uh, in, in the league mm-hmm. by a lot um, and just got horrendous amounts of abuse. And this is a, a pattern, not just of uh, American black players, but also of super shocked Cuban players who came in. And they didn't ex- they didn't experience that type of racism at home. They had their own special type of racism at home. It was a fl- a flavored right. somewhat differently, but they hadn't uh, experienced that kind of a virulent thing that they saw in Florida and uh, especially in the South in the 60s and and like being the one person, even in a less like objectively racist uh, atmosphere, it's tough because you're you're like the yeah. one person who has to like uh, explain an entire, you know, category of people. And it must be exhausting. My friend uh, Tony Pierce. Great. Um, uh, his uh, favorite character to talk about during Black History Month is always Charlie Pride uh, for that reason. It's just like, you know what? He, he just wanted to play music um, and uh, and in a in a, uh, uh, a situation where everyone wanted to throw stuff at him. It's like, fuck it. I just want to get a guitar and, and play music. Um, I have a lot of, uh, of instinctive kind of sympathy for people who are placed in that position. Um, you, you just kind of want to be yourself and not have to be an, a spokesman for an entire thing. Certainly a lot more difficult in 1963 right. than it is in 2020, I imagine. 
And to, and I, we talked about Boston earlier, by the way, and the reputation of Boston. And maybe that was before we started yeah. recording. I don't remember. But um, it, what added to that was, of course, it was the last team to integrate. Right. Um, and um, never Pumpsy forget Green, the great Pumpsy Green, who was the, who was the first uh, black player in Boston. Bless him. Washington um, Redskins in, in also thing- last team to integrate in the <laughs> NFL. This is pro- more Stunning. reasons to hate them. Stunning More reasons to With hate them. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> that idea of being like, you have to be the right person to do this. I mean, if you've ever read a uh, Jackie Robinson's autobiography, I never had it made, which kind of gives away the thesis from the biography. And he talks about, you know, attending the Republican National Convention in 1964 when Goldwater is nominated and someone tries to get into a fight with him. Bad idea. Which, side note, has always <laughs> struck me. If you've ever seen Jackie Robinson, even like, <laughs> slightly yeah. retired Jackie Robinson could still beat yeah. the shit out of him. He's not Muggsy Bogues. He's but like, not like a little guy. He spends so much time essentially trying to make the case for his race and having to be mm. put in the position of doing so. And you get the, you know, you get that it's exhausting. Like I would argue in some ways that, you know, the reason why he died in part at 53 is that that entire experience must have been profoundly exhausting. And also, he had to sit on his hands and swallow his tongue. And that was not his nature. He was a son of a bitch. He was the most, like, competitive. He would would slit your throat playing ping pong because he's like, give me any competitive playing field with a white person. I will crush him because he's got it coming because they're trying to otherwise discriminate against my family or tell them they can't do this. And and that's in Pasadena, California. Um, So he was inherently really pissed off and he had to sit on it for a year, even two. And then after they let him go, um, he was getting beamed all the time. Uh, Fans like were mad at him because he was like talking trash about the umpires he was getting in fights all the time and during that period of time when he was allowed to be unleashed he was the best player in baseball for five years in a world that included ted williams and stan Musial. it's amazing when he was like actually allowed to be the competitive monster the four sport monster that he actually was he could do this but imagine i mean imagine be like moynihan for example not to compare michael moynihan too much to jackie robinson but just like (laughs) I was I was, yeah, yeah. I was a better second baseman. Uh, no, he's actually a great second baseman too. But like that, the chip on <laughs> on the shoulder that you get from a Michael Moynihan, a competitive asshole. Imagine him having to be a choir boy for two years. Like he wouldn't work. Yeah, but he had to do that, and I think that sublimated no. uh, thing must have just drawn, driven him crazy. Welch, you realize you you said that Jackie Robinson was a monster yeah. on a leash who was overtly <laughs> aggressive. I don't think I said leash. Did I say leash? I think you said you said leash. Yeah, you said they let him off the leash. Yeah. The monster. Yeah. The animal. All, who all, was very all of these I just are say absolute compliments. You, absolute you are the personification of white supremacy. Yeah. I just wanted to at least at least it's not there. fragile. Yes. You know. Like, yeah, that's true. Do I, do I have the ability to uh, to mute Burbles' mic over here or not? Because sometimes he might get out of hand. Oh my god! <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you think you're praising, no, but you're not. No. So uh, let me let me do this. We'll take a beat away from race because there's so much other stuff in the news related to that. Um, Jane, I wanted to talk to you about the thing that you perhaps know best, these weirdo conservatives. There was a rally in Tulsa 
this past weekend. Um, it was a bit strange. They thought there were going to be large numbers there, but apparently right. the event was swift boated by TikTok kids. And I know that that doesn't really make sense, but the, <laughs> the phrase kind of popped into my head and I, I'm going to go yeah, with you're it. You're just going to go with it. I'm going to stick with it. TikTok swift boat. <laughs> TikTok swift boat. But, but I do find it pretty funny. Like the TikTok owned by the Chinese, Chinese government are using their platform or at least allowing people to use it to meddle in U.S. elections. Um, could you talk to me about the outrage that people are feeling knowing that the Chinese are trying to ruin this election? Uh, th- there is a great deal of outrage, the tic- TikTok outrage, though all of the outrage would be in short videos that someone would have to tell me about later because I don't feel like downloading this because that seems like a bad idea. Um, I think the thing that got me most about the rally is in general, and I think a numerous people pointed this out, that like, you don't oversell things if you want people to come to things. Mm. And I don't mean oversell as and sell it too many tickets. I mean, like, talk it up too much, mm. especially because that would, one, make it all, you know, when Brad Parscale is like, a million people want to come to this event. And I'm like, <laughs> the, the capacity is about 19,000, so slow your roll. But like, when you hear that and you're a person who may want to attend this rally, you are going to be thinking to yourself, I'm already a little worried about being in an indoor area in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And if you're telling me a million people are going to try to go to downtown Tulsa, absolutely not. Yeah. And so I think that that was a case of very much. I mean, it, it was bad event planning. Like, it's the kind of thing, like if you've ever planned a wedding or planned any sort of event I just like it just seems like it was a like it was just a bad idea on a lot of different fronts. And it was a bad uh, idea all to prop up President Trump's idea of himself Mm -hmm. as like this is a person he like people talk about. I mean, there's a Twitter user who does this thing of like just all of the examples in which people around Trump talk about Trump like he's a large toddler. But so much of this seemed to be like, well, you know, he'll be he'll be himself if he's allowed to have a rally or something like that. And I'm like, and I'd be myself if I were able to go to bars now, but we can't. And life is hard. Um, but back to bar fighting, Jane. <laughs> you know, once you, once you get it in you, you can't get it out. But it, it's it's interesting to me because all of this has led to you know a lot of reclamations made by people within the Trump team. And some of them I believe, and some of them I don't believe like the people who are like, this is definitely going to lead to someone being fired. I, it never does. Mm. The people who are going to, it's someone's going to get fired and it's going to be someone I've never heard of. But, um, I was reading, there was a guy Benson at town hall. He had a kind of rundown of what Trump world was thinking. And he quotes a writer at first things who I spoke to earlier this week, uh, Peter Spiliakos, who talks about how like, you know, he could have spent a lot of time talking about Andrew Cuomo f- killing thousands of elderly people, but he didn't do that. So mm. he spent 15 minutes talking about whether or not he could go down a ramp. And <laughs> I think that that's that's hot stuff. I think that that's one of the things that strikes me about Trump is that in 2016, he became this tabula rasa upon which you could project your deepest desires, your deepest fears onto but he at no point cared about any of that. Yeah. And so people who are like, you know, this is the time for him. I saw, um, I think there was someone from Heritage who tweeted something like, you know, this is the time for him to make this big speech 
that will bring people together and end the anarchy. And I'm like, you're not going to get that. He's going to talk about whether or not he can drink water. Like, come on. Which is, which is like, amazing. I mean, the, the yeah. slinging the water, throwing the glass performatively. I, I saw that and I thought WrestleMania. Like, it's just yeah. like performance yeah. art. It's great. I mean, the entire thing is. Wait, did he throw the glass? Yeah, he, did. He, did a, he did a yeah. thing? Did he get like a shot of cortisone? <laughs> what was the JFK before he was going out? Wow, I didn't see that. I mean, it really is performance art. It really is wrestling, but it's like the kind of like the bad WrestleManias. This isn't like, you know, this isn't like when Macho Man marries Miss Elizabeth. This is like one of those side ones where it's wow. like a tag team Good match that you don't know. Like, you're like, who the hell are all these people? It's not like when Leaping Lenny Poffo. <laughs> I he really was a wrestler think, that was into poetry. I really think that pro wrestling tells us a lot about politics because this entire thing about, yeah. um, you know, so much of this, so much of like what you see, especially online, is I'm like, oh, this is a work. Like, this is like, you know, there's those old spy versus spy cartoons where oh, yeah. the two spies, the two opposing spies go into work, clock in, say hi, and then start like trying to kill each other. And then they like clock out and be like, all right, have a nice night. Bye. And there are so many people within politics who do that while behaving otherwise, while behaving as if like, actually, this is the fight for a galactic future or something. Yeah. But I'm like, I know it, we all know that that's not true. We all know that this is a performance it's kayfabe it's an effort to seem as if you know to appear in this way i think that that really explains a lot of the relationship that trump has with news media where he is everyone is well aware that they can keep making a lot of money off of him being combative mm. and the people who are genuinely upset by either how Trump deals with the media or how the media deals with Trump are disappointed and left out because there's too much money to be made. The ratings are fantastic. And hmm. if you started asking a lot of questions about like, you know, there, there is no way that Trump's Twitter, like there are numerous times in which the Chiron on CNN or something like that will be like on the sidebar, like, massive protests with millions of people but let's really focus on trump sharing a weird video of toddlers that was the strangest thing the outrage around that video was so so weird it was obviously obviously uh, a joke i think that that's something that gets you know what we heard a lot in 2015 2016 was that trump was appealing to an audience that wasn't being heard in mainstream politics but I don't think that audience was ever intended to be crazy, super online people uh -huh. like crazy, super online people. You know, the whole meme magic thing that you heard in 2016, 2017. I don't think that either you are at, you are asking me to believe two things that cannot come together. Either Trump spoke to like the people who aren't online at all, the people who aren't on Twitter, the people who are largely ignored by our news media or Trump spoke to the people who would be super into Carpe Donctum making some weird video on Twitter. And I feel as if those two things do not Carpe necessarily Donctum. exist at the same. Don't. It's a whole thing. I forgot like, about that. I just, I just got, uh, I just figured out Count Dankula. That was, that was one in the free speech case in England. Yeah. And yeah. Now I don't even know what's going yeah. on. But it, it right. really is. It's interesting how what people, you know, what the story that I think that a lot of people told themselves about why Trump won, um, particularly people who are more supportive of Trump, is not the story that Trump has told himself. And yeah. so he's basically like, you know, you know how people say that I won because these disaffected 
white voters in these three to four states felt unheard. Actually, I'm going to ignore them. And I'm going to talk a lot about Twitter. Yeah. A platform most people don't use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, Matt, what your favorite moment in that in that rally was. And if you're finally persuaded to do the right thing and keep America great. <laughs> uh, my uh, reaction to this was uh, uh, reminds me of an old I think it was a Melody Melody Maker uh, cover um, with Morrissey on it whenever Morrissey had done some latest terrible thing. Uh, and, you know, or, you know, set a right wing thing, which you're not supposed to. Um, and, it, and the headline was, uh, the, this bloke isn't funny anymore. Um, which is kind of, mm. which is kind of funny. Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, like the, the wrestling, uh, shtick, the patter, the weird, uh, statements about coronavirus and all that. I haven't been paying attention to Trump for so long. I, I don't even remember what it's like. So this only like sort of filtered into me, um, by looking at Twitter, but like after the last three absolutely like horrific months in this country um, to see that same old thing uh, come down, it was it it felt different to my ears. Um, not that I was a, re a very receptive audience to begin with, um, but it just sort of like that's that's a weird act to be coming down now. You know, the exact same act mm -hmm. that he's always had and that always will have. But like it sounds and it's, it's sort of received different when, you know, what are we at? 110, 120,000 people dead now. Um, uh, and and like people are just like all compressed and are about ready to like, uh, the, uh, you know, you open up the uh, the can of tennis balls and the silly uh, snakes come out. It's a, uh, 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 you know, the streets are filled with people. It's just like it, the whole thing felt kind of odd. I never um, like the stuff that comes out of the Lincoln project type of people, the Rick Wilson's of the world and everyone who just mm -hmm. wake up in the morning. And I appreciate their, their gig, their, their, their premise, which is like, we're going to make ads that only are designed to actually tweak Trump when he sees them. Like that is the audience. It's an audience of one. And we're going to try right. to like uh, freak him out. So I get what they're doing. And occasionally they're, they're good at it or they're competent at what they're trying to accomplish. But the one thing that I saw out of all of this, that kind of like um, rarely for an anti-Trump thing rang true in some more than obvious sense was his walk of shame when he came back off the helicopter. Like he looked miserable. He looked absolutely With the tie, the tie off. off. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, the thing is, I'm like, we've all been there. Yeah. Like we've oh, yeah. all, you know, sure. you go, you go and you're feeling great. And then three hours later, yeah. you come home. And it's a yeah, different choice. Makeup <laughs> on the collar, just the orange splotch. Yeah. Like, where does she get a red tie around here? <laughs> holding it's an so unseemly yeah, baseball the cap. Thing. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 interesting because sometimes, like Trump, the if you thought of Trump as being as voting for Trump as being a statement in and of itself which I think is how some people who voted for him thought about him as being like, well, you know, other people will keep him in check and this won't, you know, nothing really like the economy is getting better and nothing really bad will happen, which I'm like, eh, you're just asking that monkey paw to do whatever monkey paws <laughs> do at this point. But you know, oh, he is God. doing exactly what he has always done. Like there isn't a different version of Trump. He can't turn into, you know, I saw some people like, oh, you know, 
it would be a really great time for Trump to be a unifier. I'm like, it would be a really great time for me to have a bear. I don't know. Like, yeah. there are lots of things that would be a really also great true. time to do. But I mean, didn't that didn't that end that night that Van Jones said that on CNN? He's like, this is the night he's going. To be the president. And it was like, dude, that's the night that you're never going to be. Oh my gosh! Wait, again. I forgot but, about that. That was that was the night. Remember that? that was the night that they attacked. Um, uh, uh, was that Syria? Was, was that the Syrian bombing fields that, that yeah, made I, it about it must have been, I think that was Brian Williams though, there. wasn't it? Like uh, um, no, I think Van Jones Van had some wow. very Van kind Jones things to say that night wow. too. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, it's it's this is the time that Donald Again, Trump this feels like president. several administrations ago. <laughs> no. Like things have gone yeah. so far, so quickly. Well I, No, it, it's yeah. funny because in my head he's he's like America's FD the second FDR. He's like on his fifth term <laughs> and he's sick. And like he might just kill over and who's gonna be the Harry Truman. But no, I just I, I do just want it to end. And I I don't know if it's a transition if we were planning on talking about it, but I, I finally um, had been piecing it together from clips of watching the whole John Bolton thing with Martha um, Raddatz. It took a while um, because ABC didn't put it up and I don't have television. So I was like piecing it together. And um, I have to say, and this is going to make me no fans here, is that I know you guys had Bolton on quite a bit on The Independence. Um, I think I've been on with him something at some point. Uh-huh. It might have even been Red Eye, weirdly. Um, could have been. I'm not sure. President of Red Eye. Yeah, I certainly did that with him. Is that is that, you know, it's so funny to watch him because nothing he said was surprising. It was literally everything that anyone had had said previously. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he's he's in in Korea. He's waiting to see how many, um, you know, assembled in the press gaggle because he wants the numbers high. And it's this constant obsession with with the media and ratings and the rest of it. But, um, you know, even when Raditz went after him for not testifying, I thought he came off fairly well. And, you know, I, would, I didn't think I would actually say that about John Bolton because it's not a feeling that I often have about John Bolton. But I don't know if anyone else watched that interview. But when I watched it, I was like, you know, he seems like an adult and he seems fairly sensible. But you have to remember that all the reasons he hates Donald Trump is that he's failing to, you know. Right. He's not bombing around. Yeah. yeah. He's just like, where, why, why is Liechtenstein not ours? And he's like, I don't think, I don't know. But um, th- there was actually a moment where he, he was not hawkish enough. I was reading the book um, and he, the, the Venezuela stuff um, is actually shocking. And it gives... You know, the Maduro people, I mean, what they've been saying on Beite Bay on television for, for, for years is that there's some sort of plot in the president to take over Venezuela because they think it's a principality of the United States, which Trump actually says to Bolton. I don't doubt this at all. He's like, you know, don't we like own Venezuela? <laughs> isn't it like, isn't it kind of ours? And it's like, no. <laughs> and so he says like, we should, we should have a military option. We should, and Bolton is like, I don't actually think that's a wow. good idea. Which is, like, wow. wow. There's a, Bit of a yeah. bit of a reversal. <laughs> right. No, I think that it really goes to I mean, it, it's funny because I think that one of the challenges of John Bolton being involved in this is it's John freaking Bolton. The guy who yeah. like he was like, we should bomb Iran. And it was at a t- point in which Iran, as far as I know, had it was like 2013 and he had this New York Times op ed like, we gotta bomb Iran. And I'm like, but yeah. are they why but why? <laughs> We're already like at we're least it wasn't busy. Yeah. cotton. <laughs> we're pre- we're, but we Apparently were, that was acceptable back then exact, before Barry Weiss worked there. Apparently. But yeah, it, it's just funny because Bolton's presence in the administration, especially with the story the administration told about itself, which was not true. The entire like, 
Donald the Dove, Hillary the Hawk thing was just not at all true, and we everyone should have known that. Mm. And Bolton's, but Bolton's president presence in the administration was always very weird. It didn't ever make but sense. But he is yeah. also someone. He is also someone who takes ex uh, takes notes all the time, and you know this is the same person who he was several years ago. And yeah. but it is interesting how much all of these quote unquote tell all books are basically just. Trump saying the things he says on Twitter, but he says them with his mouth too. Sometimes, yeah. but like I don't know. That's exactly right. It's that's not exactly that surprising. Right. It's like well, shocking. He said it in person at the, too. At the beginning I of mean, the uh, Trump administration, I predicted, and I think it, it turned out okay as far as dumb predictions go. But that the three sources of opposition to Trump from the center right would be absolute hawks. Um, John Bolton, it would turn out, uh, it, you know, Mattis, lot, neocons, a lot of whom have, have now like are pretending that they're liberal, which is pretty weird. Um, libertarians, um, you know, the Justin Amashes of the world and Mormons. Mm -hmm. Those like the three, the three who mm. find Trump to be fundamentally indecent from their sense of decency. And I think the thing that, that all those three have in common, who otherwise don't have anything in common, is that they actually believe this shit. Um, and, and I think one of the, the surprises to me, and I'm curious, get your take on this, Jane, since you know these people more than I do. But it's been a legit these people, a legitimate, yes, uh, <laughs> surprise to me to see how many. Uh, Republicans. I didn't have a huge high estimation to begin with, but like so transparently didn't or don't believe their own shit uh, when faced with like, OK, here's the most popular person uh, in the party um, and he also has power. And if I'm going to stay in politics, I have to do a fair amount of, of ring kissing right. and, and this kind of thing. Um, it's the it's the true believers love them or hate them. And, and sometimes it's all of the above with all of them um, who uh, who can't stand him because they see him, I think, right rightfully as someone who um uh, traduces, I don't even know what that word means, uh, uh, all the, uh, <laughs> all right. what we expected or what we, uh, what people had said for a long time that the Republican party was supposed to stand for. It's supposed to be you know, personal rectitude and free trade and, and, uh, free market economics right. and, uh, and, uh, blowing up people. Uh, and so they're really upset that that's not happening, but it's, uh, it's, it is shocking to me how the high percentage of Lindsey Graham's in the world, let's say. If you are listening to something and you can't quite hear it and you're like, you know what I should do? Just like just put on captions. Let's just give into this. They essentially want to put Trumpism through captions like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley are like, what if we took Trumpism, but boiled it down to what we think it actually is and ignored all the nonsense and got things done more effectively in our view, you know, either eliminating Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act or I don't know, going to war with somebody to do something because you know there really wasn't any such thing as trumpism there was not a guiding ideology that was the through line for how donald trump thought about politics there's a reason why he has been a registered member of i think pretty much every party except the libertarian mm -hmm. party he was a reform party candidate very briefly um or thought about being a reform party candidate in the early 2000s and so you get the sense that there are the the people who think that he's just getting in the way of his own message of Trumpism. Then there are kind of the Lindsey's Graham of the world who basically are like, <laughs> I just don't know what else I would do if I weren't a senator and I will stay a senator as long as I physically can be. 
And I also think that there are people who are like, who understand this as a transactional approach. And I, I've got a piece coming out on this um, soon, but the implicit understanding that especially social conservatives had with Trump or social conservatives had with the GOP at large is that if you vote for them, they will give you judges who will make decisions that you like, which is, you know, politics is transactional. You are, people are not in this for the fun of it. Hopefully not. This is not fun. <laughs> but, you know, you are in this because if you vote for these people, then these things that you like will happen. And for many, I'm sure um, David French may have mentioned this to you, talked about this last week. But the conservative reliance on the courts has been going on for a really long time because the idea of like, well, you know, we can have this legislation and no one will hear about it. But if we sue, everyone will talk about it and it'll be uh, like this issue will come up more and more. And funding lawsuits is a great way to bring in money, as Larry Clayman could tell you. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that but what we've seen from some social conservatives is like, you know, if we get the Trump nominated conservative judge and that conservative judge then makes a decision we don't like, then what was the point of all of that? So but I think that what you're seeing from some Republicans like Lindsey Graham is very much of a sense of like, you know, I'm I will try to stop him if he tries to do the very specific things I don't like, which for Lindsey Graham is not going to war, yeah. I believe. Um, but otherwise, it's just being like, you know, just just go with it. And I feel as if those are the people for whom they will at some point when this is when Trump is no longer president, they are the people who will pretend like, no, I never really liked him anyway. We had our disagreements and I'm looking forward to working with the new administration or something like that, which I, I always am struck by because like it can't be that great to be in Congress. Like it actually sounds kind of terrible to me of just like, you know, in, in terms of what you want, what you can actually get done and what your job actually looks like, not like the halcyon image of what you think it looks like, but like what it is actually like to be a United States senator. And I just mm. the appeal just doesn't really get to me. But it's, it's sort of like going to college because you expect that when you finish, you'll have a very good job after. Right. I mean, that's that's I mean, I don't think anyone actually likes being in college. Well, there's a few people that are actually lifers. there, <laughs> But I mean, there's most people just want to you know set up the, the consultancy so they can bilk people out of money. Right. But the thing about it is, and I think that I agree with almost everything you said, is the one thing I, I find interesting and that Trump would never actually notice is that the things where he, where he's heretical on you know, typical Republican policy. Matt mentioned a number of them. I would add things to it like healthcare, actually. Um, you know, I mean, when he like called the, the Republican healthcare, he called it me mm -hmm. and then confirmed it later. That was, that was kind of through the grapevine. He confirmed it later, I think on, you know, Fox News Sunday and said, yeah, no, I said it was mean. And Obama said it was mean too, but he stole it from me. <laughs> it was something like, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like that. But you never hear um, Republicans defending that. Or defend, even on free trade, you have the Lighthizers and the Peter Navarros of the world who have always been uh, protectionist right. types. But most everyone else is like, they'll do the thing about American jobs, but they're not going to go in deep on trade in the way that N Navarro does. And I think that a lot of these things where he has these kind of heretical uh, viewpoints, which would be Trumpism, is very few people are publicly publicly defend them. They just said sort of to what you just said. It's like they kind of yeah, like go I on mean, to get along. And Mike Pence get was get a huge free trader. You know, Larry Kudlow he's, spent an entire – Steve Moore spent close. an entire career on this shit, you know? You know, I, 
Th- yeah. Those are people that are that are like directly employed by yeah. him. I should have made that as a caveat. I mean, but in in Congress, I mean, if you're just expecting him to go away, like inside the machine, it's you know Steve Moore and Larry Kudlow were actually the dumbest of free traders. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm a free trader, and those are the guys that were um, you know pundits pretending to be economists. They're not economists, right? No, anymore. Stephen Moore. I mean, Stephen Moore with Freedom Works and like that entire organizing principle is so interesting because especially because it's no longer. I'm I'm fascinated by the rise of kind of populist conservatism mm. um, for many reasons, um, but I am interested by how populist conservatism could be credited to Trump as helping to develop it. But then the people who were employed by Trump are like, actually, we need more tax cuts. You know what? People <laughs> yeah. like tax cuts. Like Heritage Action isn't even trying to sell people on tax cuts. I think they have this giant paper where they do polling showing that. 50% of independents found that the emphasis on tax cuts and deregulation was harming working families. And they're like, we have to turn the page on a Republican economic policy. And Stephen Moore and Art Laffer are like, nope, we don't have to. We're just going to keep on talking about tax cuts because that's at a certain point. Like when you've got a, a rather than wield populism in the way that it could be wielded to the benefit of the Republican Party, if you come up with, um, there's a book that Raihan Salam and Ross Duthat wrote a couple of years ago, Grand New Party, about making the Republican Party and kind of a working class party. And a lot of the ideas in it are essentially this understanding of populism and the understanding of use, using government to foment family formation. And then you have all these Trump employees who are like, no, we don't want to do that. That seems bad. And whether or not it is bad or not it is a growing movement without the within the republican party that could also appeal to independence and yet the stevens more of the world are like we would rather not do that the hardest interview that one can ever do is well, i sat down with art laffer a couple of years ago um, for this documentary that i did uh for hbo um on trade and i sat down with laffer and and by the way an amazing guy to interview, super fun, like a really, really nice guy. I was not expecting it and had a great time with him. But it is the hardest thing to, to sit down and interview somebody who every question you ask them specifically about free trade, you know he doesn't believe his answer and he's kind of winking at you. <laughs> and I'm like, but what is the point of this? I'm like asking you these very detailed questions, trying to get back around the point that you just made. And then, and then periodically when, when, when it's divorced from Trump and you say 1980s, you know, trade, uh, China, whatever, and he's like, He's he's our laugher, yeah. you know. He's writing things on a napkin. Yep. But you you bring it you, you you to use the popular word of the day when you center Trump, then everything became like I don't believe that again within a, a minute, and it was the oddest thing. And he kind of like you know understood what he was doing, and he, he knew that I I understood what he was doing. But he's like, yeah, I just kind of have to do this now, and you know, I think it's going to be a disaster this trade war. But he didn't say that. He's like, who knows? That was that's him saying it's gonna be a disaster. Like, I don't know. The president, you know, he loves trade. I'm like, no, he doesn't. He's like, but he does. He just likes it in a different. He loves it in a different, it in a different way. way that you and I it's love. It's a it. different kind of love. Totally different way. I think there's it's a like, through line okay. uh, talking about the Art Laffers and the the John Boltons, which is that um, I, I tend to think probably more than Jane and more than most people that Trumpism is close to a thing. Um, it's, uh, it resembles, um, uh, uh, European kind of populist conservative movement. So it's anti-immigrant, but pro welfare state. It's a, it's a different mix than we're used to in America. Um, but so like, if you're going to start an administration like that, 
you go for your personnel. Who is your who is the person who is going to um, on on uh, foreign policy um, have the same kind of ideas that you did when you, you campaigned in South Carolina calling the Iraq war uh, the worst mistake ever? Um, well, you, there's no real deep bench of that. There's not a lot of people uh, who are doing that. Kind of, the, you know, there isn't a think tank of right-leaning people in uh, in uh, Washington that talks about foreign policy uh, anti-interventionism. You know, yeah, but it's not okay, really yeah. right, and and you know, it's it's not it's not yeah. very influential in, yeah. in that uh, particular thing. And I think there's something uh, true also for his anti-trade stuff, which I think is deeply believed. I mean, he the way that he's talked about trade forever for his like. It's the, it's one, the thing one thing he's been consistent, consistent on. on. Okay, yeah. so who do you go? You have yeah. to go to Peter Navarro. There isn't a lot of people. You have to have him in a high place. You have to have lightsaber. You have to have a couple of guys who are there, <laughs> but there isn't a whole lot of people. So the other people are, gonna, are just going to right. be the ones who have always been there, who actually believe the opposite, but will be transactional in the moments. And and so that leads me to a question. Uh, let's pretend that all that observation is true for a second. But Jane, in looking at this, do you think that people are – is there a, like a backfilling development uh, of uh, the Josh Howleys of the world, uh, who is the one I sort of think about in terms of this, who are like, OK, I'm, I'm not going to call it Trumpism, but I'm going to fill this out with like we are going to have a completely different idea about approach to media policy, for example, than than Republicans and conservatives and certainly libertarians had for the last 50 years. Um, we're going to just flip that on a dime. Uh, we're going to be more protectionist. I don't know about Holly's foreign policy. I presume it's also it's awful, whatever direction it is. But like they're trying to fill in the blanks of that conservatism. Right. Is there going to be do do you sense that there is um, a kind of Trumpism that's filling behind him and then will therefore take some ballast in the party after he's cashiered in November or whatever happens? I think so, to some extent. I think the first instinct, um, you know, if Biden were to win uh in November will to, for the record be that everyone returns to principled libertarianism. Um, Ted Cruz Jesus will remember Christ. that he's occasionally a libertarian. Remember that? Hmm. Remember when I thought it was bullshit from the beginning, but yes, I do remember that. <laughs> I remember, well, I remember when his dad shot. Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. Facts. Facts. How, quick, how quickly we forget that. Yeah. We don't bring that up as much as we should, but um, <laughs> I think that there will, but I do think that the, you know, the issue, the reason why, in some ways, Trump happened is myriad. I mean, it's about 75,000 people not voting and a bunch of other things happening. But I do think that there is a moment for a populist conservatism that does, you know, that understands or thinks about Americans in community in a way that I think that um, the kind of con the conservatism um the previous iteration may not have talked enough about um in the view of some of the people involved in these movements you know the idea that like well we'll we'll just leave family formation to like churches and private organizations i think that for the jd vances of the world and for kind of the josh hollies of the world that's not enough i however i think all of this is so reliant on those ideas being politically popular and salient or seeming popular. You know, if you look at Trump and you see someone who is like, that's a populist, I don't really know what you're seeing. You are seeing what you want to see in Trump. And that's a lot of what we what we get is a lot of people looking at Trump and seeing what it is that they already want. Um, and Trump 
permitted that in, ma- in many respects of being like, I'm the best friend to evangelicals and I'm the most LGBT friendly <laughs> re- Republican president. Like I can be everything to every, everyone. So what will happen that I, I will be interested in just to see if the populism remains like if there if let's say that Trump has handed a massive electoral defeat in November and, um, you know, that Democrats hold the House and, and I'm not going to say take control of the Senate, but hypothetically, if that were to happen, which is unlikely, um, I think that the understanding would be that Trump is out and Trumpism is out. However, I think that like what a populist conservatism, populism will not go away from conservatism um, because I think that they've already started building too many institutions set, centered around it. You know, at a certain point when you have people who are so focused on the perpetuation and development of a specific ideology, I think that it's really hard to undo that. You know, it, it's going to be take a little while to turn the ship around. I think that that was something... Um, I remember, you know, I cover uh, white nationalism on the alt-right, and there was a real sense that a lot of people seemed, within those worlds, seemed to think that, like, the second Trump was inaugurated, they'd just start mass-arresting non-white people. And then, you know, you you saw even some glimpses of disappointment, but, like, but where's the race war? And I'm like, sorry, guys, that's not, that's not generally how this works. And I do think... (laughs) That the ship that has been constructed around populism and around a populist conservatism and an idea of populist conservatism, one that sometimes tries to bond itself with uh, populism on the left, but that's challenging for a host of other reasons. I do think that that ship is it's too big now and it's not going to get turned around. Um, And so I think that that backfilling that's been taking place that will last even if Trump doesn't, despite my also feeling that everyone's going to become a libertarian again. Hmm. I don't think they're going to we're going to ever have that moment where the Jeb Bush view uh, of immigration will be a Republican view of immigration. Right. Anytime soon. And I mean, that's the thing that, you know, Matt mentioned this of, of European populism and what unites European populists with very, very few exceptions. I mean, the Norwegian Progress Party is probably the only one and the Dutch party, too, that uh, that um, Geert Wilders the Freedom Party are kind of free market parties, but the rest of them are not. They're welfare state parties. They're, you know, very actively um, saying we we need to grow the welfare state. And it's just we just shouldn't grow it for immigrants. That's who should not have welfare. Right. And I in immigration is anti-immigration sentiment is unfortunately always a popular idea. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's been a popular idea in Europe for a long time and um, it, increasingly so after the migrant crisis. In Americans, I mean, if you look at recent uh, uh, Pew data, you know, they say that Im- immigrants are taking jobs that Americans don't want, but they do want beefed up border security. They do want a path to citizenship. So it's a complicated mm-hmm. thing. There's majorities on those things. And it's also not kind of racially exclusive when you talk about these things. It's not just sort of white voters right. against, which so many of these things are white voters and black voters on the other side, it's there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. there. So I, I wish they wouldn't, because it's not policies that I, I tend to appreciate. But I think it will, that's that right. part of Trumpism definitely is going to stay. My inclination is to suspect that we probably won't see a return to libertarian politics for conservatives, primarily because of the broader political circumstance that they're likely to face post-November. Um, presuming Trump doesn't win, 
we will be in the world post COVID or at least still perhaps or perhaps still in the COVID universe. And in either case, it's going to be a world of increased government spending, expectations of massive subsidies and entitlements to help people out of very bad situations. And I just don't think Republicans have the stones to adhere to principle in an environment like that. There, there may be oh, no. a bit of a, an aggressive competition to outconcern one another. Um, and right. perhaps figure out some innovative way to try and sell their new policies. I mean, if the dollar collapses and the dollar's weakening and wobbling now, and because of policies that we've seen in the past couple of year, past year in particular, it's not going to get much better. I mean, the dollar is very weak. And if that continues in the trend that it's going, and if unemployment doesn't tick down significantly after this, this uh, ends, I think that, you know. We're in for a very. I mean, you world. still you still um, probably don't get a, a, a whip inflation now program in a world like that with <laughs> with a whole lot of inflation. Oh, you no, probably no. get more no, spending, certainly and no. certainly the administration's yeah. response to it, at least in the short run to the economic concerns of the country is we saw the president earlier this week restrict visas further. Um, and this is not an epidemiological policy of any sort, no. trying to keep out people who might be infected by COVID. He have ex- has explicitly said that he is restricting these H-1B visas, which are particularly popular in Silicon Valley with various tech companies who are bringing in high-skilled employees. Weirdly, he opposed those before, um, too. Yeah, but restricting them more now. Mm. Um, and H-2B yeah, visas COVID. and L-1 visas, all of these visas which, are being restricted way, just, in the, order to- Those um, do not apply to people who are perhaps working at golf courses. <laughs> um, someone, someone asked the administration, um, I think it was, uh, I think David Fahrenheit of the Washington Post, he was like, if someone is before Trump or an administration official ask about this, like, and they're like, no, 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 it doesn't apply to people who are working at golf courses or in like these different like huh. service sector areas. And I'm like, oh. Huh. Interesting. That's weird. What a fun fact. Well, what is what is funny is the 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 president or at least the statements and remarks that have been made in support of this action um have explicitly said, well, we want to make sure that they're giving these jobs to American first Americans first. Of course, all of these visa programs require employers to demonstrate that there is a, a lack of supply for people who would be capable of filling these roles, which suggests that we we were kind of already doing that. And most of the tech companies who are up in arms about this are saying, dude, these are places where we just don't have the people in country and we are likely to be at a disadvantage. And in a world where people can't leave their homes, seems like a very bad world to discourage folks from trying to come to the United States at all. Perhaps you create a pattern where they just don't come. Um, Camille, is is it not true? And, and again, this is actually an, an honest question. Is it not true that there is some evidence? And I know 60 Minutes did a piece on this a, a while ago. Um, that tech companies do like to use H-1B visas for people who are skilled from foreign countries because they do actually get the, the, the labor a lot cheaper. But they, but they pref- yeah, they prefer uh, foreign labor because it is cheaper. I don't I, know if this is I true. And like more entrepreneurial too. Uh, but I haven't seen any evidence that there's a shortage of employment opportunities for highly skilled software engineers who they're happening to, in many cases, import from various a- Asian countries. But here in the United States, they're just kind of walking around with bundles on their shoulders because they can't. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that that's, isn't happening. That, that's, you know? that's it's it's a bindle, by the way. And that is also, <laughs> so it looks that is it's also, literally a bundle. Um, it's literally a bundle, a bundle on their shoulder. Like, yeah, it's yeah, you yeah, people call yeah, them bindles. Okay. Don't don't actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't you people don't man. correct me, uh, white man. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I'm so fragile. When you I know. Do. There's going to be so many white tears. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think that sounds right to me. What you're saying sounds right yeah. to me. I just, I have heard and I've seen that, I've seen people say that there's academic data to support yeah. that. I just don't know what it is. Well, maybe, so, maybe we, uh, we should chat a little bit about some of the other things that are happening in the world. Um, particularly, the, well, the fireworks are part of it and the great, the great fireworks conspiracy. <laughs> so mysterious. Um, yes. But, yes. But, yes. but broadly speaking, we, we still have protests taking place this past weekend. We had some protests as well as some partying on Friday, uh, Juneteenth, which we almost recorded on Juneteenth with you, Jane. Um, it, but we didn't do that. We pushed it a couple of days. Uh, but there are still people who are demonstrating, in some cases, still pulling down statues uh, and other things are happening in the streets. Uh, maybe we could chat a little bit about this. And Jane, I, I don't know what your appraisal is of where things stand with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I know that you've written a lot about the reform agenda. Right. Um, as you mentioned, we talked to uh, David French the last time we recorded, um, and he actually endorses something he called the Coastin Plan, which I endorse as well <laughs> publicly on this podcast because all of your ideas are good ideas and they're very consistent with what weirdo libertarian people um, agree with. We, we talked extensively about qualified immunity, right. um, but you talked about civil asset forfeiture being something that is absolutely heinous and stupid right. and bizarre that we have in this country. Could you talk a little bit about one, what you see happening in the country to the kind of reform agenda that seems to be, playing out um, and what you make of the demands for um, abolishing or defunding the police, whatever that means. I think that the understanding, I think it's challenging because I think that one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how for many people, their perceptions of police are based on their perceptions of local police. Uh, polling shows that in general, people hate Congress, but like their congressperson and people mm -hmm. don't like the police, but like their local police. And so I think that my general appraisal of where we are at this point is that we have, for many reasons, we've gotten or allowed ourselves to be distracted from how we got to this moment. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the general impetus of it is talking about police violence and police brutality. And when I say police brutality, occasionally, you know, you think of a case like Amadou Diallo or something like that. But I also think that occasionally, um, you know, police brutality can look as it does when it's, you know, when it will not later be recorded as anyone dying, when it can be just police acting towards people they refer to as civilians. There's a great piece in Reason today, actually, about the militarization of police that goes beyond uniforms, but also goes to how police think about their own job. Mm -hmm. And so I think that any effort to ref any efforts at reform that we've talked about, whether it's qualified immunity, whether it's ending the power of police unions. And I've been joking that over the past couple of weeks, I think maybe police unions want to be ended because the people who run them keep talking in the way that you would if you really wanted someone to fire you. <laughs> like The Minneapolis police union chief, I was like, I think, is this like a weird, like, um, like springtime for Hitler kind of thing where you're like, what is the worst thing I could possibly come up with to say? Um, 
But I think that even our conversations about reforming the police really need to get at a, a crucial issue, which is like, what is the role? What are police for and what is their job? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why you know, part of the quote unquote Coaston plan is thinking about the laws that we we have on the books and the laws that we thus require to be enforced by violence um, through policing. Um, and I was particularly struck, um, you know, there have been so many examples of um, people being killed by police, white and black. Um, I've been I've been somewhat stymied by the response by some conservatives who were like, well, this white person was killed by police. And I'm like, that that doesn't make it better. I don't want anyone to be killed by police. But um I was struck by a case that happened in Aurora, Colorado. It actually happened last year, but the investigation kind of fell off the wayside into the death of Elijah McLean, who was um, who died in police custody after being injected with ketamine. And it was it was a very concerning situation. But what struck me the most is that the reason someone called 911, the reason someone called the police it's because Elijah, who sounds like kind of like a weird kid who likes playing the violin to animals and worked as a massage therapist and was apparently like very nice. Uh, yeah. Um, and <laughs> he was wearing headphones and a ski mask and dancing. And so someone called the police because it looks suspicious. And the person who called the police was like, he doesn't have a gun and no one's scared. No one looks scared. He doesn't look like a danger to anyone else. But they still were like, I should call the cops for this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that a lot of us deal with, where a lot of, you know, when we're talking about, you know, defunding or abolishing the police, I'm aware there are people who are very dead, you know, very serious about mm-hmm. abolishing the police, which I don't support because I think that. It introduces a vision of humanity that does not make sense to me, (laughs) where I understand, like, you know, I've been doing some reading on the subject um, from people who've talked about prison abolition, which I think I'm actually I'm actually more sensitive to the issues of prison abolition than I am to police abolition as Hmm. a concept. Mm -hmm. But the idea, you know, there was a New York Times op-ed about abolishing the police where the response to, you know, well, what about violent crime is that police are very bad at catching people who commit violent crime anyway, which I'm like, yes, but that's also bad. And so I think that this comes down to a conversation about who are the police for and what are the police supposed to do? And I think that there's very much of a sense what we saw during um, some of the anti-shutdown protests that took place, um, anti-stay-at-home protests in several yeah. states, yeah. was from some conservatives who were like, you know, we basically have this deal with the police that we will support them. They just can't be mean to us. And uh, there was a piece in Town Hall that was very much along those lines. And like now that now that agreement's been broken. And I'm like, yes, it's hard when police are mean to you, isn't it? And so I think that the idea of who the police are for, who get who is in contact with police, what people call the police to do, um, where I think for many people, the police, you know, the police only come when something very bad has happened. They are not just omnipresent in their lives. And for many people, um, they are simultaneously over policed and under policed where crimes don't get solved. Um, there was just a case um uh, I was just reading about in which two girls disappeared and, you know, two little black girls and the police were like, it's not a big issue. And then they were found in a house that 
had been rumored in the neighborhood to be a uh, house for human trafficking. And so the neighbors essentially formed a posse to help free these girls. And then the cops showed up and it was just a situation in which like this neighborhood was simultaneously underpoliced in that the investigation of two children disappearing was kind of like, eh, it'll be fine. And over-policed in that this was a neighborhood in which, you know, broken taillights and stop sign violations are heavily penalized. And so I I think at this point, we're at that moment, we keep doing this thing. It's like we're at the end of a diving board and we're like, okay, we're going to have a conversation about race and policing. Okay, we're going to have a conversation about race and policing. Oh, what's that? We, d- we don't have time to have a conversation about race and policing? Oh, well, we were about to have a conversation about race and policing. But I think it's it's even more foundational than that. It's like, what are police for? Why are the same police that you would call if someone broke into your house, the same police who are also enforcing traffic violations and the same police who are, you know, you're, ask, you're asking police to do a lot of things that they are not trained to do. American police, um, there's, you know, if you're in the uh, occupational licensing Twitter, there's a <laughs> lot of talk about how police are largely... Let, you know they receive less training by time than you would if in many states if you're a hairstylist mm-hmm. and so we're asking people who are not adequately trained to essentially be police and social workers and mental health professionals and dealing in a country full of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people and mm-hmm. i think that that is an almost and lots yes of guns. and lots of guns and that do have a lot of guns and that's almost an impossible ask that's why i think that what i would more support is unbundling the police um, that what that resources, you know, there are going to be moments that don't start out as needing police, but then turn out to need police. But there are also times in which you want to call someone who isn't the police. When there's someone who looks like they're having a mental health episode and you're well aware that people who are having mental health episodes are far more dangerous to themselves than anyone else. And a police officer with a gun entering the situation would probably be very bad. You want to call someone else. And I think that what the protests are about to many people is about forcing people to have this conversation of what are police for? What are we asking police to do? What, do, what is this all about and who gets to agree on it? Um, I know that you know, you wanted to talk about this a little bit, but I was struck by the Wesley Lowry's piece um, in the New York Times talking about uh, black journalists and newsrooms. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by how so many of the kind of silent tacit agreements we've made societally were mm-hmm. made at a time in which the acceptable conversation and the acceptable conversation partners were relatively limited. You know, um, my colleague Ezra Klein wrote a book, uh, Why We're Polarized, and he talks about how, you know, yes, it seemed less polarized in the 1950s and 1960s, but that's because when you're having a conversation around all white men who pretty much agree on most things, like, you, you will, of course, you're going to come to a lot of consensus in that group. And so what you're seeing now is for many people for the first time, there are a lot of people who are like, actually, I have some thoughts on this particular issue i would like my views to be included you know my experiences of policing have been very very bad or my experience of you know this the wielding of state power has been very bad and so this conversation is widening this conversation is going in directions that i think that 
the people who are very, you know, I understand that there are many people who find these kinds of conversations like scary. Um, there are people, you know, they're like, what does this all mean? I'm like, well, I don't know what it means, but the people who are having these conversations have a lot of thoughts on this and perhaps you could listen to them. And, you know, I know that. But is there, Jane, is there a conversation amongst people like us uh, or is there sort of a monologue at this point? Because I know that, you know, your coworker, Zach Beauchamp, who said something about, you know, maybe it's not a bad, maybe it's not a great idea to defund the police and later apologized for that what seemed to me is a quite sensible thing to say. And it seems to me also that when you see the corporate world, I can't imagine if anyone said like, Hey, we need to have a conversation about Mm -hmm. this, but we need to also think of our cops as, you know, our neighbors and our human, they'd get, I mean, they would get flamed to death. I mean, I, I don't think that there's a, I think there's a one way conversation now where it was a one way conversation previously. It's being replaced with a one way conversation in a different direction. I would say, um, I I remember, I remember that day on Twitter and I think that with Zach, (laughs) it was just very much of like, he, you know, we talked about it a little bit afterwards. He was like, I hadn't read enough about the subject and I shouldn't be opining on it if without knowing more about it. And I'm like, okay, that seems fine. And I think that it is interesting. I am interested. <laughs> At all times. Well, not, inter- not me. But, it is but. interesting to me that um, the corporate world, um, there, Ross Duthat wrote a piece today on this, essentially about how like this is kind of the second loss for Bernie Sanders. Um, that like the corporate world is like, yes, Black Lives Matter. We're in. Let's do it. This is awesome. Yeah. And I would say that that is a conversation. I would say that a lot of that is signaling and it's not necessarily to it's signaling to the people involved in Black Lives Matter protests. It is signaling to the people who are at home watching TV being like, I am mildly supportive of this, but not really enough to do anything about it. But I want to feel like I'm doing something about it. Um, I think a lot about the idea of signaling uh, you where you have a political position or you say something, but it's not even something you really believe. It's because it gets you in the right position with the right people. Um, You see that a lot with um, I've kind of been using the term vice signaling where you have people sometimes intentionally pretend intentionally saying things that they know are mean-spirited or bad or something like that kind of not even something that they would hold to but kind of but because it positions themselves correctly and so a lot of of the corporate statements about black lives matter or about this moment are an attempt to position themselves and I'm interested that that is where you appropriately position yourself right now. I would also say mm. that to me, um, and you know, I, I'm aware many people disagree with me on this. I think that the signaling effort between corporations and generally an audience of like white liberals with money, uh, that mm. to me is like a separate, that's a separate conversation. I'm reminded by how um, uh, if you follow um kind of lgbt politics there was a big issue that when Indi- when mike pence was governor of indiana uh he attempted to pass a version of the religious freedom at restoration act in the state of indiana um there's a federal rifra that's cool and awesome and then the state level rifra was going to be less so and so major companies were like we'll just pull out of indiana and you saw mike pence be like what no and like he kind of uh, if you're a social conservative, you think he waffled on that moment. But so I think that, you know, yes, corporate power is very real in politics. Corporate power, corporate behemoths are very extraordinarily powerful in get in using their signals to get people in the what they feel to be the right positions. 
But I would also say that to the, you know, it's not as if the people who are protesting outside the White House right now are like, oh, Nike said something. Woo, thank God. <laughs> but I think they, they are happy that this is happening, though. The sense that I get is that they, they do see the, the consensus that's forming as, as a victory. And they're trying to maintain this campaign right. in order to, to secure, to secure more of those victories. And I, I want to put one more thing in, in, in the, in the mix for you to respond to, because you were talking about, you know, the, 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 the degree to which there was a consensus before and how things are starting to change now because more voices are in the mix. But, but I wonder about the consensus before, because I think before the ni- 1980s, there was a general sense that in perhaps the 1970s as well, minority communities were under-policed and they wanted tougher laws. They wanted tougher drug laws and that there was a broad American consensus that they needed to do something about this. The reason, you know, Reagan talked tough on crime stuff all the time was because it sold. It worked in general. Yeah. And there wasn't, I think, uh, an expectation amongst you know, black folks that they were going to be, you know, assaulted by their local police departments, as you mentioned, and as polling suggests, I I think I saw like the Monmouth poll um, fairly recently about like local police departments, black people, like most Americans view their local police departments as something that is generally pretty good, like overwhelmingly. Right. And which, which makes the current moment, I think all the more strange to me because of the way that so much of the conversation is, you know, I think it's like Benjamin Crump's book, which is titled Benjamin Crump, who is essentially a fixture in all of these various cases, these watershed mm-hmm. cases of promoted black tweets. people getting killed. I always see the promoted tweet, but I think his book is called <laughs> Open Season, like a legal genocide on black people, which is just like, that's hysterical nonsense. That right. doesn't have a place in this conversation at all. But that is the dominant narrative when I get into conversations with people, it's like, I mean, I, I just can't believe it. Like the cops keep killing all of the black people. Um, and it's just, I, I'm not sure for me, the reason I, I tend to have conversations about that and try to get people to back away from the hysteria is because I think part of the reason the conversations gets dislodged and lost is because hysteria just doesn't help most conversations turn into right. productive, I mean, good policy and reform. And, and before you, before you answer that, just to add to pile this on, one pile thing, on. You, you mentioned, no, 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 <laughs> you just mentioned just a little addition to the piece, the West Lowry thing that you mentioned and what Camille just said, I, I, that line stuck out at me in the second or third paragraph. And I pulled it up. And when, when he says the unabated police killings of black people across the just country, bad. it's not true. Wes. I, I mean, unabated is, is, I mean, if there was one and there was another, Another one. I, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a squishy word in some ways. But if you read that, it just sounds like it's a charnel house of cops killing people, which does not actually seem to be the case when when you look Wes's, at Wes's Wes's book. You can't kill us all. I believe was the title of his book about Ferguson, which was barred from a sign that he saw. But still, it goes to the point. I think that um, going going back to your note about the 1980s, it's interesting because what people wanted was for existing laws to be enforced. Mm-hmm. What was happening in many neighborhoods um, in D.C., Detroit, Cincinnati, elsewhere, was that there were places in which the existing laws were not being enforced. Um, and I think, and also that that got to this idea about 
you know, there are these bad inner city areas and there are these good neighborhoods, other places Mm -hmm. where, Mm -hmm. you know, there are American citizens living in both places. And that construct was about the enforcement of that construct was about how there were laws that were not being enforced in some places and were being enforced in other places, but the law was being applied unequally then as it is in many respects. Now, you know, I keep thinking about how, um, you know, the, what laws were being enforced in the 1980s and what laws are being enforced now are laws that are most likely to penalize people who are, you know, to penalize low level offenders. And the, you know, I, we're not really that great at catching people who commit financial crimes right now, um, <laughs> despite those also being crimes. And I would also say that I think one of the challenges here is that um, when we're thinking about police violence and police brutality, it is, you know, when you have someone like Senator Tim Scott or other people, there is a, there is a sense that this is a, an experience for a lot of people, not obviously death for many people, but the experience mm-hmm. of police and the fraughtness of interactions with police that many Americans do not experience. Many Americans experience police as either the people who came to their dare class to tell them about how smoking marijuana would lead to them injecting heroin or, they come to or it's you know you call them or you might get called for a noise violation when you're in college and then you have to send out your college roommate to like negotiate with the police and pull a whole like you know jedi mind trick these you don't you don't know what you're looking for everything is totally fine don't <laughs> ask any questions and so i think that in those in those ways the when some people experience the law in one way and other people experience the law in a very different way. I think that that is a tremendous challenge for our understanding of the rule of law. If it's not applied equally, if laws, you know, part of why so many, um, you know, drug offenses were you know, part of the kind of Reagan tough on crime attitude was centered on the issue of drug offenses Drug offenses that the penalization of drug offenses in one area looked very different than the penalization of drug offenses in other areas. Um, there's been a lot of writing on the cocaine disparity, but you also see that in terms of, you know, what you know, we in the 1980s were also a time of extraordinary growth of narco trafficking, mm-hmm. massive growth of narco trafficking. And so you see that happening simultaneously as this tough on crime attitude that is laser focused on neighborhoods in DC and laser focused on black neighborhoods across the country, where you're simultaneously having this massive growth of high level billion dollar cocaine enterprises. And so I think, but those were pretty aggressively prosecuted, weren't they? I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. Tony DeCoupel, who I'm sure you know from ABC this morning and the husband of, uh, of, um, Katie Tour, yeah. yeah, and the the husband of Katie Tour wrote a book about his father in the 1980s being being arrested, and and I mean Tony went to a very posh school in Miami, and he found out later he's going to a posh school in Miami because his dad was right. a drug dealer, yeah. and he went he went to prison for that. But you know that that is often you know the disparities oftentimes when you look at neighborhood differences, there are a number of factors, and of course people have talked to me, we've talked about the show that it was 
more to what we were talking about previously, that the CBC was, you know, upset that these right. crimes were not being prosecuted in black neighborhoods and saying this is an ab- this is like an abdication of your responsibility. And as we said on the Patreon, Camille and I just impromptu recorded the other night. Nine one one's a joke. Right. Mm. He, Public Enemy just had a song that came out as a George Floyd song. That song was like the police aren't right. responding. <laughs> They're not coming to and our neighborhood. That's the thing. It's like we uh, they, they, no they, they only it. come when they yeah. come when and they it's want simul- it. It's that simultaneous experience of being both under policed and over policed. Yeah, where no, like no, you know, if you have but a the, broken tail light, it's like all hands on deck. But if you call the police because something is happening at your home, well, who knows what might yeah. happen. It's also too, and I I don't know the breakdown of this. And I said this to Camille today. We we're talking about it um, on the phone, and you know I have to go and look at this stuff. But a lot of like a lot of those arrests in the eighties, which I absolutely opposed to the the drug war and how ruinous it was on so many communities and the stupidity of the policy. But a lot of that stuff, you know, if you're getting pinched for having crack on you, is do you have a gun? Do you have priors? Things like that. I mean, I think that also affected um, the prison sentences because, you know, we want to get tough on guns. There's too many illegal guns in the street. And if you have one uh, gun on you, that's going to increase the charge and the sentencing. So, I mean, there's a lot of wrinkles in in how this actually played out. And, right. of course, the disparities I think that, are very real. I, I, I mean, think people uh, generally um, – can't appreciate enough the context of crime went up from 1960 to 1990 the entire time. And then it went down mm-hmm. from 1990 to two, 2020 the entire time. For inexplicable the, reasons. Yeah. 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 And it, it's lead funny paint, how, man. yeah, the lead paint, <laughs> Abortion. Yeah, the, the number of all of the reasons that people have come up with, like very serious people, all of them yeah. sound like, ah, witchcraft. <laughs> yes, and so, yeah, it's true. And then it's the true. weird disappointment yeah. you saw from some people when like you you ended stop and frisk and New York did not become a raging hellscape. And I'm just like, but like how crime works, I, I've gotten to the point now that I think about like crime rates in the same way I think about the stock market. And I'm like, I think it's kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite understand. Well, certainly the stock it'll just market be like, now. It'll yeah. be like, ah, this form of violent crime went way up, but this form of violent crime went way down. The reason? No idea. Yeah. One of the things I was looking at crime numbers in Boston today, reading that West Lowry thing. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts and um, I spent a lot of time in Boston, uh, particularly in like Roxbury and Dorchester and stuff. Cause we had busing and uh, my school and, um, it's funny because I was looking at the numbers and the, the crime falls the same pattern as New York. One of the things where you see an enormous decrease, enormous decrease is in, is in robberies and burglaries. And I was wondering, thinking about that, because it's a much, much steeper decrease in Boston that I saw than, than murder was. And I was wondering if it was just technology. Right. Since you can't steal somebody's phone anymore. You can't steal somebody's phone and use it. I mean, you can steal somebody's phone and chop it up and make it for parts or something, but it's not like you can just grab it from somebody. I mean, technology has probably done yeah. a lot for preventing burglary in a way that, that it didn't. I mean, so that's one explanation in a very sort of narrow way, but the decrease is, is ab- absolutely shocking. And I, I noticed that the highest murder rate was the, I think the year that I entered in Boston was the year I entered on, on record was the year I entered high school. And then the second highest was the year I graduated high school and that whole time. And I knew kids that I went to high school with were shot and killed uh, that were Metco students. That was the name of the busing program that, you know, and it was it was stunning to me because there was something different because it was like, you know, that was the thing in the 70s. Bring people out of those shitty schools, undeniably shitty, to very, very good uh, suburban schools and undeniably good and everything would be great. 
And that's not what happened. And in, in particular, just in the example of the people that I knew, um, a lot of them had just very bad results in life. And I think a lot of them did very well from it too. But there were so many other things, um, factors that I saw in, in, in that place. You know, and policing is, it, it was something that I noticed younger. It was like, there's police everywhere. I never saw cops when I was, like you said, they would come to a party right. or something. But not beyond that, I never saw. I yeah, never saw it's funny how many of our different, like our, we have a like a purported crime wave or a crime wave. Then we have the panic about the crime wave, and then we go back and be like, why did the crime wave stop? I, I think um, specifically mm. about the issue of stranger danger, which of the 1980s of people <laughs> being very concerned about their kids being taken by strangers, which was extraordinarily oh, yeah. rare anyway, and is now virtually unheard of. Whereas you know custody battles and kidnappings resulting from custody battles very common no one wanted to talk about it um but i think that what i want folks to focus on is not i think that there's a lot of like side stuff to the conversations we've been having about black lives matter where it just gets into like what what about thomas jefferson and i'm like what about thomas jefferson i want Uh to stay focused on the issues at hand which are this conversation about the unequal application of the law and the fact that we have allowed police in many areas to become this separate sphere and to think of themselves um, as a military unit, to think of themselves like they, you know, there's that whole, like, we're the wolf that guard the sheep. And I'm like, Mm. I am not a sheep. And you are not a wolf. Like, like, I think she's a libertarian. I'm not a sheep. Sheeple. No, but like, it, it just is also her, like, Moynihan. as you know, if you have an under, like, you're like, ah, like community policing, community policing, and this idea that the police are the one thing holding back society, holding everyone back from murdering each other, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I wonder, Jane, and I, I want to, we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to throw a couple of things at you to respond to. Um, the, well, it's not a French goodbye. <laughs> there, there has been, there go. has been a, a bit of a spike in crime in recent weeks. Um, and obviously we're just under pretty extraordinary circumstances. Right. We've got this pandemic that has just almost certainly been beating the stuffing out of certain police forces who've been doing a lot of overtime, especially in a place like New York. Um, but New York has seen a pretty substantial crime spike. Chicago has seen a pretty substantial right. crime spike and plenty, various other places have. And when we say crime, uh, what I'm mostly talking about here, violent crime, like right. actual shootings where people are yeah. getting dead. And it seems interesting that, you know, we're having a conversation about abolishing the police in that context. It's true that police don't spend most of their time doing violent crime. And it's true that they're not great at solving violent crime, especially in places where there's a lot of murder. Um, but it's also true, I think, just when we look at the data on policing, that police do, in fact, deter crime right. in a lot of circumstances. And having police forces can actually be a useful tool in that regard. I wonder what you make of what's what's likely to become of, you know, a, a ostensibly a reform movement. And I, I just don't know if it's fair to call Black Lives Matter and this particular wave of protest a, a criminal justice reform movement anymore, because so many of the conversations like it, the stuff that end up happening, like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, like being on the chopping block, maybe that's good for someone 
but I just don't know that most children were covering their pancakes and syrup in the morning and thinking to myself, you know, I love this. I love the South. I love it. It's just so nice to think that Mammy is making me pancakes every morning. Yeah. It's right. just no one was thinking that this isn't helping Jefferson anyone. And, Which, and, I mean, I think that that's something, you know, there was, there was not a, no one wrote a letter to Aunt Jemima and being like, could you, you know, for the... You know, in the interest of criminal justice reform, it would be very yeah. helpful if you did. I mean, I think that that's a <laughs> no, signaling just like effort. Someone like, on someone on TikTok who just said this is racist. Yeah, this and it's just is like racist. you know, no one has eaten cream of wheat since my late grandmother passed away. And then people are like, uh, like, but we have to change the cream of wheat mascot. And then I looked, <laughs> who's on the cream of wheat? Uh, hey. Go look it up. It's a it, the ad, the original ad from 1921. Um, it's yeah. essentially like a minstrel character yeah. who basically yeah. is like. Mm-hmm. I can't read, but cream of wheat is full of vitamins, and it's... <laughs> Wait, is Boy, that yeah, what the up a lot of cream of wheat right now. <laughs> that is, I just, that I, is uh, the worst uh, ad. Amazon Prime. Um, okay, so I haven't seen the early ones, and I don't want to dislodge you here. I haven't seen those early ones, but this just... The current one is just a black guy with right. cream of wheat. Yeah. But the same one, it uses like his head with the, the chef's hat. Yeah. Um, yeah, the chef's hat. So yeah. the original ad, it's uh, his name is Rastus, and it says, maybe cream of white. We ain't got no vitamins. I don't know what them things is. No. If they bugs, they ain't not in cream of wheat. Wow. But she showed wow. good to eat and cheap. She, Cost she about one cent for a great big good. dish. Rastus. Wow. And after wow. reading that, I feel bad wow. inside. Wow. That you just reminded me. I, that is the most racist thing that has ever happened on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> It's the first time I've ever heard Camille I just remembered because you said Rastus that I was taught wow. a song in my elementary school called Rufus Rastus. I don't know if you want to share Johnson this. Brown. Uh, and I'm almost sure now, if I remember oh, it, that it's going to be super duper racist. So check it out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that <laughs> check um, the understand, I mean, it's, it's been interesting because you've seen uh, you know, these spikes of violence, which I think. It's it's challenging to have all of this happening at the same time as a pandemic where a lot of things that yeah. would be open aren't open. <laughs> a lot of people who would be doing things aren't doing things. Yeah. And so you can see much of this is just like, man, every, a lot of people are really mad right now at a whole lot of things. And some of that yeah. is interpersonal anger and some of it is like existential cultural anger. But I think that this moment has made it. You know, when you're having Scott Walker essentially say, uh, saying on Twitter, well, we can either abolish the police or reform the police. And I'm like, ha ha, we've got you. We're so close. Um, <laughs> Although Scott I, Walker has always, always been pretty good on this stuff, or at least has moments where he's been pretty good on criminal justice reform. I think that, you know, when you when he was doing his big um, anti-union kick, but he made sure to make keep fire fighters unions and police unions out of it. I, uh, yeah, Your mileage may true. vary. Um, that's true. But that's I true. think I think that this is a moment in which what is I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I remember earlier this year we were talking about impeachment, and now who they're this is insane. With. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, government government run fireworks operations meant to yes. terrorize black and brown yeah. people in New I York mean, City. 
Yeah. Yes. Heard a, and, from a New York Times journalist. Yes, I know. Which I just was like, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those Occam's razor things. But like even Occam is like, come on, you don't even need me for this. <laughs> like <laughs> my favorite thing I realized, I realized that we talked about this in the Patreon, but I realized afterwards that like uh, uh, Hannah, what's her name, was talking about professional grade fireworks. It's like, how do you know what the fuck a professional grade fireworks sounds like? Who do you think you are? You're like, oh, this sound, I can tell this sound of the professional grade fireworks. <laughs> the one thing I will say about the whole movement though is that is that these things are going it's going to do the same thing that the women's march did and the Me Too movement did is that people who live in these small communities and they talk mostly to themselves and they talk mostly on Twitter is they burn out so fast because they go zero to right. 60 in like a half a second. And it's like, I saw this thing, the black lives matter at the time, this woman who refers to herself as the co-founder of black lives matter, like literally joining hands with Nicholas Maduro yeah. in Venezuela. And it's like, no, 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 that's not no. the thing. Cause you need to get the crazy people. It's like, no, they want the whole thing. They want the, not a progressive agenda, just like a batshit and agenda. I, I think though, and that's the stuff that's the right. dangerous, dangerous thing. And to the corporate stuff is that the other danger there is that every corporation thinks they're doing it themselves. They're just the one person saying what they believe. But to the consumer, you're getting 300 of these things a day and people are starting to go like, this is a bit crazy. I, and to the one, it feels fine. But it's like all, it's say every time. And I, I told a story um, again on the Patreon. I'm trying to get people to, to, to sign up um, about like checking on my 401k. And it just literally said, it was like a big red thing. And I was like, oh shit, I lost all my money in like some stock scam. And it was like, now we love. And I was like, what? You live in, you live in Darien. You live in Rowayton, Connecticut. What are you talking about? It's like, I know. I, know you're I can hear you typing in Vineyard Vines. And you're telling me, it's like, there's a point at which people say like the whole thing is absurd. I think though that. And I think there's a danger always of, 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 of I think though that like, yo, I've been struck by how much this has the people who aren't on Twitter who are still hearing about this, the people who are participating, participating in Black Lives Matter or marches in like Fairbanks, Alaska and mm -hmm. in Montana and Idaho and other places. <laughs> there are no black people. There are a few, <laughs> to be clear. Like, um, well, the police will take care of that. They will <laughs> exterminate them. That's what they do. And, but I think that that's I, I, I think that there is a sense, you know, there is the conversation that we have in the media about these moments. And then there's a the conversation that people have who are not like knee deep in this have. And mm -hmm. I think that it'll be interesting to see what that conversation turns to yeah. where mm -hmm. you, yeah. you are still having, you know, in terms of the me too movement, I think that there are a lot of people who are still like, you know, we we're still having this conversation about the workplace and about misogyny and sexism in the workplace. And for a lot of people, that's about as far as it got. It didn't get to like the very the mm -hmm. specific ins and outs of Ronan Farrow's reporting. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that that the same thing might happen here where because I think that what you're seeing um you know, even Tucker Carlson was like that the Black Lives Matter movement is more popular than than Congress or mm -hmm. any politician around, especially yeah. because I think that that the decoupling from because there is the Black Lives Matter organization and then there's just kind of the concept of Black Lives Matter. And I think one of those things is far more amenable and far more popular than the other. I think you're right. Just one small thing, though, with the, the Me Too thing, you're absolutely right. It's a, that, that didn't kind of penetrate the, the sort of brain. That is phrase, phrasing, phrasing. But, but oh, sorry, I didn't I actually didn't even think of that. But you did because you're a pervert. 
Um, but I will say that in the Black Lives Matter um, example is that it, it is actually making it to people of the abolish the police mm-hmm. stuff. So people are hearing that and having a conversation about it, particularly because, you know, the city council in, in mm-hmm. Minneapolis and this being a kind of uh, this clarion call to abolish the police. And then you see people on Twitter. So it's actually a reverse thing on Twitter saying, no, 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 that's not actually what they mean. You don't, that's not what they actually are saying. And it's like, okay, well, change the name from abolish the police to let's have a conversation about the police or let's, you know, have, you know, crossing guards Unbundle. give you speeding tickets or something. Let's do I it. Mean, yeah. Let's do it. Unbundle, Unbundle the cops. Yeah. That's a, yeah. a jam. Exactly. That's a jam. Exactly. Everybody, everybody's on board. I think, yeah. I mean, if, if, if you ask police officers, would you like to be doing all of these other things? The answer is probably They always no. say no. They yeah, do not. They always say no. Always say no. Well, Jane, I'm glad that you said yes to I joining did. us this evening. See how I did that? <laughs> it's pretty good. I'm smooth. I'm so good. Don't have good at this. Don't, don't yeah, point it God out. You're good. ruining. You're pointing no, no, out. No, no, no. Listen, listen. Modesty is overrated. Jane is not overrated. Jane, you know what's <laughs> funny? Every time you come on the podcast, people expect you and I to have some sort of a massive disagreement, which I don't understand because I'm completely on board with the Coastal Plan. We may have some disagreements. I don't even know what they are, but I've enjoyed our conversation immensely and I look forward to the next one. I have as well. Maybe we can just start like a Twitter beef. I don't know. That seems hard. <laughs> I don't. Too, too much. There's it's too much too of much, that in my life. It's there's too, too much, much of that in my life. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Bye. Bye. Right, bye. bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column.